Hello, and welcome to 15-Minute History. This week, as we approach the holiday season, we here at 15-Minute History are looking back at how far we have come since the summer of 2018, how our audience has grown, and how grateful we are that you've tuned in each week as we have walked in history's footsteps 15 minutes at a time. Sunday was the anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and we wanted to return to a World War II theme this week. We have prepared a remastered broadcast of our first two episodes. This has nothing to do with me forgetting our production schedule. It was totally planned. Okay, maybe not, but we hope you will enjoy it nonetheless. We will have a new episode for you again next week, and we'll continue to release new episodes right up until the new year. As always, thank you for being a part of the 15-Minute History audience, and we'll see you next week. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny if necessary, for years. If necessary, alone. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. The Second World War, history's greatest military conflict, began on September 1st, 1939 with the German invasion of Poland. Its roots, however, stretch back at least as far as the signing of the Treaty of Versailles at the conclusion of the First World War, then known simply as the Great War. Germany's defeat by the combined forces of Great Britain, France, and the United States led to a Carthaginian-style peace agreement in which the defeated Germans were humiliated, their country dismantled, their economy crippled, and their military neutered. A legend soon sprang up in Germany that the people had been stabbed in the back by their leaders, who were variously accused of being socialists, democrats, capitalists, and Jews. Following a turbulent birth and the suppression of two anti-government revolts, the Weimar Republic eventually stabilized the country and looked to pay war reparations and to bring the German people back into the European fold. In 1923, however, a diplomatic crisis between Germany and France led to the occupation of the Ruhr Industrial District by French soldiers and the collapse of the German economy. As the people starved and burned their currency to keep warm, a new political movement in Bavaria railed against the November criminals who had surrendered Germany to the Allies and began to plot a rising in the South German state which would return the entire nation to greatness. This was the National Socialist German Workers' Party, and they were led by a war veteran with a powerful voice and sinister charisma. 
Adolf Hitler was born in Linz in the Habsburg Empire on April 20th, 1889. The son of a minor civil servant, he hoped one day to be an artist. But these dreams were frustrated, and he was soon unemployed on the streets of the great city of Vienna, a haven for anti-Semites from across the European continent. He made his way to Munich, where he enlisted in the Bavarian army when the Great War began. After four years in the trenches, in which he earned the Iron Cross and was wounded twice, he returned to Munich and witnessed the street violence that was sweeping the city and the country. Now serving as an information officer, he attended a meeting of the German Workers' Party in the Hofbräu Keller. He soon joined the party and rose to lead its central committee, transforming it into a racist and nationalist movement which sought to revive German greatness and to expel or exterminate the greatest enemies of Germany, the Jews. In November 1923, five years almost to the day since the armistice had ended the Great War, Hitler and the Nazis staged a putsch, a revolution against the Bavarian government. They marched on the Burgerbräu Keller, a beer hall in which the ruling People's Party often held meetings and rallies. The Bavarian state commissioner, Gustav Ritter von Kahr, was taken prisoner with other members of his government, and the Nazis declared that they now controlled the state and planned to march on Berlin to launch a national revolution. The putsch ultimately failed after an armed confrontation between Nazi marchers led by Hitler and the Munich police at the Odeonsplatz. Hitler and most of his supporters were arrested and sent to prison. While in Landsberg prison, he wrote the first volume of Mein Kampf, or My Struggle, his political memoir of the putsch and a summation of his views for Germany's future. When he was released in December 1924, Hitler reorganized the Nazi party and declared that it would seek to enter government legally rather than by violent means. For the next five years, he and his collaborators worked to build up a structure within the party which mimicked that of the German government. In effect, he planned to simply replace government bureaucracies and ministries with those of the party once he had secured power. Hitler's chance came when the Great Depression struck Germany in 1930. As the economic crisis destroyed any progress made by the Weimar Republic in the previous five years, the Nazis and communists made tremendous gains in local and state elections. By late 1932, the National Socialists were the largest party represented in the Reichstag, the national legislature, and thus had the power to create and dissolve governments. Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, who had triumphed over Hitler in the presidential election earlier that year, desperately tried to keep his nemesis out of power, but the Nazis in the Reichstag refused to cooperate with another chancellor. Out of options, on January 30, 1933, Hindenburg summoned Hitler to his office and named him chancellor. Hitler now had full command of the civil government of Germany. Over the next two years, Hitler consolidated his power in the state and brought every aspect of German society under the Nazi party's control. Only one month after his assumption of the chancellorship, a fire broke out in the Reichstag building, probably set by a Nazi stormtrooper. Hitler used this crisis to demand emergency powers from the Reichstag, which immediately acceded to his wishes. He then outlawed all other political parties in Germany and arrested their leaders, sending them to the Dachau concentration camp outside Munich. The Nazis seized control of Germany's education system, youth organizations, churches, courts. Every part of German society fell under the party's influence. The following year, Hitler conducted the first of two purges when he secured the loyalty of the army by eliminating his stormtroopers' leadership, whom Hitler believed were plotting to overthrow him. Only a week after the blood purge, President Hindenburg died, and Hitler assumed the presidency with the new grandiose title of Führer and Reich Chancellor of the Greater German Reich. The Gathering Storm, 1935-1938 to 1938. 
Now wielding supreme power in Germany, Hitler set out to break the shackles of the Versailles Treaty. Over the course of three years, he systematically dismantled every restriction placed upon Germany after the Great War, reintroducing conscription for the armed forces, creating a military air force, remilitarizing the Rhineland, intervening in the Spanish Civil War, and annexing his home country of Austria. Every time Germany moved, the Western Allies, Great Britain and France, refused to consider military action to stop him. Domestic issues, combined with fear of another continent-wide war, kept the Western Allies at bay and allowed Hitler to turn Germany into a military and economic superpower. The loudest voice against this policy of appeasement came from the halls of the British Parliament, where Winston Churchill repeatedly denounced his own government for failing to halt German aggression. But Churchill was out of favor at this point in his career and was seen as a warmonger and a danger to British public safety. As German factories hummed and workers assembled tanks, planes, and submarines, the Western Allies clung to Hitler's repeated assurances in speeches to the Reichstag that he wished only for peace. It was at this point that Hitler began to implement the plans he had laid out in Mein Kampf for the removal of Jews from German society. In 1935, in the city of Nuremberg, the Nazis promulgated their race laws, which legally defined the term Jew and restricted Jewish citizens' rights and freedoms under the law. Soon, local Nazi officials were organizing boycotts and pogroms against their Jewish neighbors. Some Jews tried to flee to Germany for safer shores, but few nations opened their doors. The United States, which had suspended all immigration in the 1920s, took in only 2,000 Jews each year. In 1938, the Nazis authorized a nationwide pogrom against the Jews called Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass. On November 9th, stormtrooper and SS vandals destroyed Jewish shops, burned synagogues, and beat Jews in the streets. No insurance claims were paid to shop owners, as the government blamed the Jews for the destruction. Kristallnacht is often seen by historians as the beginning of the Holocaust. The Western Allies finally saw the true nature of their enemy in September 1938, when Hitler demanded that the nation of Czechoslovakia cede its border region, the Sudetenland, to Germany. It was populated largely with ethnic Germans, and Hitler wished to bring these people into the Reich. The Czechs refused and prepared for war, but British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain traveled to Germany twice to negotiate a settlement. When he visited the Fuhrer at his mountaintop home in Berchtesgaden, he was awed at the view of the Austrian Alps and distracted by Hitler's rantings against the Czech for their mistreatment of the Sudeten Germans. The Prime Minister insisted he would find a path to peace which addressed Hitler's concerns. In a second meeting at the Brown House in Munich on September 30, 1938, Chamberlain got his wish. Hitler pledged never again to demand territorial changes in Europe if the Czechs would give him the Sudetenland. This was the apex of appeasement, and for Chamberlain it was his greatest triumph. After landing at Hendon Airfield in London, he disembarked his aircraft, greeted a cheering crowd, and then traveled to Whitehall in the center of the capital. From a balcony, he spoke to thousands of Britons, quote, I believe it is peace in our time, unquote. Churchill replied up the road from Whitehall in the Houses of Parliament, quote, You were given a choice between war and dishonor. You have chosen dishonor, and you will get a war, unquote. Into the Storm, 1939-1941 In fact, a war was what Hitler had wanted. He fully intended to start his great conflict with the Western Allies in the fall of 1938, and only the hesitation of his generals convinced him to wait. Now he would press on. In March 1939, Germany annexed the rump of Czechoslovakia, leading Chamberlain to finally realize that Hitler would never stop. 
Britain and France immediately signed a guarantee with the Polish Republic, which possessed a strip of territory around the city of Danzig, which had belonged to Germany before the Great War. By the summer of 1939, Hitler was demanding that the Poles surrender Danzig to him, and when they refused, he resolved that the time for war had come. In late August, Germany signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union to prevent Germany having to fight a two-front war, and then on September 1, 1939, Hitler unleashed his armies upon the helpless Poles. Joseph Stalin's Red Army attacked Poland two weeks later, and the country was crushed between these two giants in less than a month. Britain and France, whose armies were ready to invade Germany on the first day of the war, did not move with sufficient strength or aggression to assist the helpless Poles. The flames of war which burst out on the continent in September 1939 then died out almost immediately. Germany had conquered Poland, and the Soviet Union invaded Finland in November, fighting a long and bloody campaign which lasted into the new year, but neither side launched any major offensives throughout the winter of 1939 to 1940. Some called this conflict a phony war. Only at sea did men continue to die as Churchill, now First Lord of the Admiralty, hurled Britain's Royal Navy on the small but still dangerous German Navy. The Allies also dropped leaflets on German cities urging the people to rise up against their Fuhrer, but this did little to sway the population against the man who had remade Germany in his image. Their stomachs were full, they had jobs, and their armies were marching to victory. Hitler's style of warfare was called Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War, and it stemmed from the reality that Germany was not prepared for long campaigns against strong enemies. This tactic had worked against the Poles, and by the spring of 1940, Hitler was planning to strike again. Before his great campaign against the West, the Armed Forces High Command intended to secure Germany's northern flank and its access to Swedish iron ore by seizing control of Denmark and Norway. The Danes surrendered after only a few hours on April 9, 1940, and the Norwegians fought valiantly but succumbed in three weeks. Then, on May 10, German tanks burst through the Ardennes Forest. The blitz against France and the Low Countries had begun. Neville Chamberlain's government in London fell just hours after the German assault began, and King George VI invited Winston Churchill to form a new government. Churchill promised the British people, quote, blood, toil, tears, and sweat, unquote, in this war, but proclaimed that his aim was, quote, victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be, unquote. But victory was still a long way off for the Allies. The Germans rolled up the Allied lines in northern France, crushed the Belgian army, and forced the Netherlands to surrender after reducing the city of Rotterdam to ashes. By the end of the month, it appeared that the bulk of the French army and the British Expeditionary Force, which was trapped between the advancing Germans and the English Channel, would certainly be destroyed. Only the heroism of the Royal Navy and the defenders of Calais and Lille saved the day in a last-ditch evacuation of Allied soldiers from the port of Dunkirk. France's fate was sealed, its government surrendered to the Nazis on June 22nd, but Great Britain would fight on. In the last days of the French Third Republic, a new figure stepped onto the stage of this war, Benito Mussolini. The fascist dictator of Italy since 1922, Mussolini was Hitler's closest ally in Europe. He had hoped to delay a war by urging a settlement at Munich in 1938, and he did not enter the conflict in 1939 because Italy's armed forces were not ready to fight the British in the Mediterranean. On June 16, 1940, over the objections of his generals, Mussolini cast his lot with Hitler and declared war on France and Great Britain, a decision that would ultimately cost him his position and his life. 
Italy invaded southern France and the British colony of Egypt with enormous armies which outnumbered the enemy, but in both cases they were beaten. For the rest of the war, Mussolini would repeatedly come to Hitler asking for help with supplies, munitions, and eventually soldiers, and every time the Fuhrer would do what he could to help his friend and ally. The war in the Mediterranean and North Africa would soon take center stage, but first the drama in Western Europe had to play out. Great Britain now stood alone against the German Colossus. Its army was intact, though denuded of equipment left behind at Dunkirk. The Royal Navy ruled the waves, and the newly created Royal Air Force was small but supreme in the skies above England and Wales. To conquer Great Britain, Hitler knew he had to first destroy the Royal Air Force. Only then could his small navy cross the English Channel and land troops on England's south coast. The Battle of Britain, which began in July 1940, was the first battle fought entirely in the air. German and British fighters traced contrails in the skies above London, and bombers rained fire on British cities each night. Despite seven weeks of relentless bombardment in which many historic buildings were destroyed, the British people refused to break, thanks to the stirring words of Winston Churchill on the radio, material aid coming to the island kingdom from the United States, and most importantly, the bravery of RAF pilots who spilled their blood defending their homes and families. By the end of August, Hitler abandoned his plans for an invasion of Great Britain. Air attacks would continue, most famously the 57-day Blitz against London in 1941, but Hitler's attention now turned to the east. Hitler had written in Mein Kampf during the 1920s that Germany would ultimately find living space for the Aryan race in the vast spaces of Russia. To this point, Stalin's Soviet Union was a German ally, but that would now have to change. After a brief diversion south to conquer Yugoslavia and Greece and to bring Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria into his orbit, Hitler began planning his largest campaign, the invasion of the Soviet Union. After months of preparations, monitored by the British, who tried desperately to warn Stalin what was coming, German armies broke across the Soviet frontier with lightning speed on June 22, 1941. The Red Army was utterly unprepared for the war, its leadership having recently been purged by Stalin, and the early weeks of the campaign saw hundreds of thousands of brave Soviet soldiers slaughtered or captured. As summer turned to fall, the Germans were approaching the central cities of the Soviet Union, Leningrad and Moscow. They approached Moscow by late October and laid siege to Leningrad, which would endure the horrors of war for a thousand days and see over a million civilians killed or wounded. However, Soviet resistance was stiffening. Stalin had ordered his armies to retreat in the early months of the war, but now, under the leadership of General Georgi Zhukov, they stood their ground. The temperature was dropping, and by the first week of December, the German advance had stopped. Soldiers of the German army could see the spires of the Kremlin in the distance, but they could go no further. Hitler resigned himself to a long war in the east. He did not doubt that victory would come, but it would come in 1942. I see the Russian soldiers standing on the threshold of their native land guarding the fields which their fathers have killed from time immemorial. I see them guarding their homes where mothers and wives pray. Ah, yes, for there are times when all pray for the safety of their loved ones, for the return of the breadwinner, of the champion, of their protector. I see the 10,000 villages of Russia where the means of existence was wrung so hardly from the soil 
But where there are still primordial human joys, where maidens laugh and children play, I see advancing upon all this in hideous onslaught the nasty war machine with its clanking, heel-clicking, dandified fashion officers, its crafty expert agents, fresh from the cowing and tying down of a dozen countries. I see also the dull, drilled, docile, brutish masses of the Hun soldiery plodding on like a swarm of crawling locusts. I see the German bombers and fighters in the sky still smarting from many a British whipping they're delighted to find what they believe is an easier and a safer prey. And behind all this glare, behind all this storm, I see that small group of villainous men who plan, organize, and launch this cataract of horrors upon mankind. We have but one aim. And one single irrevocable purpose. We are resolved to destroy Hitler and every vestige of the Nazi regime. From this nothing will turn us. Nothing. We will never parley. We will never negotiate with Hitler or any of his gang. We shall fight him by land. We shall fight him by sea. We shall fight him in the air. Until... With God's help, we have rid the earth of his shadow and liberated its people from his yoke. Let us move forward steadfastly together into the storm and through the storm. Events on the other side of the world were building to a climax. The Japanese Empire had been at war with China since 1937, and China's American allies had been desperately seeking a way to weaken Japan's military strength and force an end to the war. Embargoes on resources and other economic measures had failed, but these drove the Japanese to seek alternate supplies of oil, rubber, and iron. The Dutch East Indies beckoned, with the Dutch government now in exile in London and its military in tatters. But first, the Japanese had to remove the greatest threat to their empire, the American Pacific Fleet. On December 7, 1941, Japan bombed the American fleet at Pearl Harbor, bringing the United States into the Pacific War. The Japanese were Germany's allies on paper, but they did not consult or even inform Hitler of their plans. When he learned of the attack, the Fuhrer made perhaps the most fateful decision of his life. On December 11th, in a speech to the Reichstag, he denounced the United States as Germany's true enemy and declared war. The two conflicts were now linked, and Germany now faced the combined military and economic might of the world's largest empire, Great Britain, its largest army, the Soviet Union, and its largest economy, the United States. The prospect of a global war for world dominion excited Adolf Hitler, but no nation on earth could stand against these three powers for long. The Eye of the Storm, 1942 to 1943. Adolf Hitler was confident that his armies would smash through what remained of Russia, while Mussolini, with German help, would conquer Egypt and cross into the Middle East to seize Britain's oil fields. Together, they would then march on India in the manner of Alexander the Great and help the Japanese seize the jewel in the British crown. 
Meanwhile, the U-boat blockade would starve the British Isles into submission. Then the Axis powers would confront the United States with the combined might of Europe, Asia, and Africa under their sway. The reality, of course, was very different. The third full year of war in Europe opened with news of more Japanese victories in the Pacific, as one island fortress after another fell before their might. The Japanese defeat at Midway in June soon put an end to their offensive operations. On the Eastern Front, the Soviets had reinforced the defenses around Moscow with troops from Siberian garrisons, so Hitler shifted south to capture the oil fields around the Caucasian mountains. Without these resources, Stalin's armies would wither and die. The gateway to southern Russia was the industrial city of Stalingrad, named for the Soviet dictator in recognition of his victory over the Tsar's forces during the Russian Civil War. The assault on Stalingrad began in September 1942 after early moves to expand the front eastward toward the Volga River, securing the German left flank. Again, Stalin ordered his soldiers to fight where they stood. Not one step back, read his order of September 30th. The city was soon ruined by bombardment and street-by-street -street fighting. Meanwhile to the north, General Zhukov, recently arrived from Moscow, began to slowly push the Germans back, exposing their flank as the temperatures dropped yet again. By December 1942, the city was surrounded, and the German 6th Army was running out of food. Soviet snipers felled one enemy officer after another, and the Germans' leadership structure began to break down. By the new year, the 6th Army was seeking permission to surrender, which was refused, and the army was finally overrun on February 2, 1943. Hitler's refusal to consider pulling back and his hubris at believing his soldiers would fight on at all costs while the high command abandoned them had cost him the last chance of victory. Soon, defeat on the Eastern Front stared him in the face when his tank armies were crushed at Kursk in July 1943. For the Germans, the only way in Russia now was back toward the fatherland. In North Africa, where fighting had raged back and forth along the coastal plain in Libya and Egypt for two years, the German Africa Corps now pressed its attack under the leadership of General Erwin Rommel. A staunch patriot but not a member of the Nazi party, Rommel was recognized as Germany's greatest general and a favorite of the Fuhrer. The British Eighth Army defending Egypt had gone through three commanders in as many years as Churchill sacked one general after another, desperately trying to find someone who could handle the threat from Rommel. In August 1942, the Africa Corps suffered a minor defeat at the rail station of El Alamein, 60 miles west of Cairo, at the hands of General Sir Bernard Law Montgomery. Now running short of supplies, Rommel pulled back but remained in Egypt, bracing for a counterattack. Montgomery, however, felt he had plenty of time to prepare his troops. He finally moved only when Rommel advanced a second time. The Germans ran into a large British minefield near El Alamein, and Montgomery's artillery destroyed what few enemy tanks remained. With its armored strength depleted, Rommel's Africa Corps now pulled back. Days later, on November 7, 1942, an Anglo-American task force landed in French Northwest Africa under the command of U.S. Army General Dwight Eisenhower. With Montgomery advancing from the east and Eisenhower from the west, Rommel had no choice but to fall back to Tunisia. By January 1943, his army was dwindling, yet still powerful enough to inflict heavy casualties on the Americans at Kasserine Pass, and all Axis forces surrendered to the Allies in May. One continent had been liberated. At sea, the German U-boats were now confronted with the vast production capacity of the United States. Germany's surface fleet had been largely scrapped after several defeats at the hands of the Royal Navy, but America put so many sub-hunting corvettes and escort destroyers into the waters of the Atlantic that the Germans were simply overrun. 
By the end of 1942, the German Navy had been reduced to patrolling the coasts of France and Norway in search of Allied landing ships. Likewise, Germany's efforts to control its own skies were frustrated in 1942, as American bombers appeared over German cities and brought destruction unlike anything seen before. Allied strategic bombing, deliberately targeting cities to destroy production facilities and demoralize the population, has been the subject of controversy and debate since the war's end, and in hindsight, its effectiveness is questionable. Nevertheless, it did bring the war home to the German people and gave them a taste of the medicine doled out by their Fuhrer on Britons earlier in the war. 1942 was also a turning point for Hitler's war against the Jews of Europe. With Germany now largely cleansed of Jews by the start of the war, the Nazis turned their attention to the problem of those living in conquered territories. Walled ghettos had been set up in most major conquered cities across the Reich to concentrate the Jews in specific areas, but the concentration camps in Germany were overflowing with political prisoners and other undesirables like homosexuals, the disabled, and religious dissidents. In January 1942, a group of second-level Nazi bureaucrats led by Reinhard Heydrich, head of the Reich Main Security Office, met in the Berlin suburb of Wannsee. In a large house overlooking a beautiful lake, they laid out plans for a final solution to the Jewish question. The question was what to do with the six million Jews who had been absorbed into the Reich by its military conquests. Some proposals included forced sterilization and euthanasia, which had previously been used against German dissidents under the T4 program in Munich, but these were rejected by Heydrich as taking too long to complete. In the end, SS Colonel Adolf Eichmann presented Heydrich's own ideas for the final solution, two short-term and one long-term. First, the existing concentration and labor camps would be augmented with mobile gas vans whose exhaust fumes would be pumped into sealed compartments at the back. Jews would be loaded into the vans, driven about town, and poisoned, then their bodies would be removed and burned. Second, the Waffen-SS, the military arm of the SS police, would form six task forces which would move into occupied areas once secured by the army, where their death squads would shoot Jews and other undesirables by the thousands. Their bodies would be dumped into mass graves. In the long run, though, these options would still leave Germany with millions of Jews to be dealt with, so Eichmann proposed enlarging six existing concentration camps and constructing vast gas chambers to murder thousands of Jews each hour. In a calm voice, which shook some in the audience, Eichmann explained the numbers from his research at Treblinka and Auschwitz. 3,500 Jews processed each hour at each camp for eight hours a day meant the deaths of 168,000 Jews per day, 840,000 per five-day work week, 42 million in just one year. Of course, he conceded that would be at maximum efficiency, and he predicted the actual figure would be only half as much on average. Witnesses at the Wannsee conference described the light in Heydrich's eyes as he eagerly ordered the full apparatus of the German government to comply with Eichmann's plans. The final solution had been devised, and it would now be implemented. The Holocaust yielded far fewer deaths than Eichmann had planned, but the toll is still almost beyond comprehension. Of the 11 million people murdered by the Nazis during their 12-year rule of Germany and much of Europe, at least 3 million were gassed and burned, often after weeks or months of tortured life, in the six camps over three years, and 8 million more in the smaller concentration camps or by the SS task forces in Russia. Most of the attendants at Wannsee died during or shortly after the war. Heydrich was assassinated by Czech partisans later in 1942, and the survivors were put on trial at Nuremberg or by the State of Israel once the war had reached its end.
Through the Storm, 1943 to 1944. In 1941, the Soviet Red Army was the world's largest and yet slowest modern military force. Soldiers marched on foot or rode in horse-drawn wagons across hundreds of miles of Russian soil, and this contributed to their catastrophic defeats in the early years of the war. Thanks to American aid, and particularly the 27 million Ford and General Motors trucks delivered by convoys to the Soviet Union, by 1943 the Red Army had been transformed into a motorized juggernaut. It possessed the best main battle tank of the war, the T-34-72, which could outshoot and outmaneuver any German panzer except the King Tiger, few of which were built during the war. With its victories at Stalingrad and Kursk behind it, the Red Army now rolled forward, destroying one German army corps after another in a tidal wave of battle across the thousand-mile eastern front. Germany's allies, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria, held the southern sectors of the front and were ground to pieces in the assault, and within a year all three nations had been invaded and were on the brink of surrender. Casualties on both sides were enormous. The Soviet Union would see 20 million soldiers, both men and women, killed or wounded during the war, and another 20 million civilians would lose their lives as well. Once the Soviet tide began to roll, it could not be stopped. By 1944, Germany's conquests of three years past had been reabsorbed into the Russian motherland, and Zhukov was ready to invade occupied Poland and the rest of Central Europe. The attack on Poland pushed the Germans back in a familiar pattern, and by June the Red Army had reached Warsaw. The people of the Polish capital, who had suffered under German occupation for five years, rose up to drive the Nazis out of their beloved city, and they sent messages to the Soviets welcoming them to Warsaw. Under orders from Zhukov, the Red Army halted on the opposite bank of the Vistula River for three months as the Germans regrouped and attacked the city. Tens of thousands of Polish patriots were butchered by the Germans in the Warsaw Uprising as the Red Army looked on. Then, once the city had been reclaimed by the Nazis, the Soviets moved in and crushed the garrison. According to his post-war memoirs, Zhukov's rationale for his actions at Warsaw was simple. If they would rise against the Nazis, they would certainly rise against the Communists. He was content to let the Germans destroy what remained of Polish nationalism. With North Africa secure, the Anglo-American armies next moved to attack what Churchill called the soft underbelly of Europe, Italy. Beginning with an amphibious assault on Sicily in July 1943, the attack on Italy brought down Mussolini's government. The new regime of Marshal Pietro Badoglio then surrendered Italy to the Allies, but Germany occupied the peninsula and fought bitterly for every mile of ground. General Eisenhower was soon transferred to London to plan the invasion of France and the creation of a longed-for second front in Europe, and Montgomery soon followed him home. The Italian campaign drew thousands of German soldiers away from France and the Eastern Front, but attention soon shifted to the invasion of Normandy. Nevertheless, the sacrifices made by Allied soldiers at Cassino, Anzio, and Salerno should not be forgotten and historians have recently begun to re-examine the Italian campaign and to pay honor to these fallen heroes. On June 6, 1944, the Western Allies fulfilled promises made to Stalin at the wartime conferences to open a second front in Europe. 150,000 American, British, Canadian, and other Allied soldiers landed on the shores of Normandy in northern France in what has become known as D-Day. The amphibious operation was the largest in history to that point, surpassed only by those at Iwo Jima and Okinawa in the closing months of the Pacific War, and the Allies soon held a secure beachhead in France. Thanks to the efforts of Montgomery and General George Patton of the U.S. Army, the Allies liberated Paris in August and raced to the Franco-German border in a quick campaign that overwhelmed the German defenders. 
The attack slowed briefly in September for an ill-fated diversion northward into the Netherlands to destroy Hitler's secret weapon launch sites, and this gave the Germans time to recover from the Allied Blitz across France. American and British bombers continued to reduce one German city after another to rubble, and by November the Allies were moving toward Germany again. Yet amidst these signs of defeat, Hitler summoned the strength for one last desperate offensive. The Ardennes Forest stretches from southern Belgium into northeastern France, and its dense foliage provided a barrier to both countries against invasion for centuries. Hitler had sent his armored units through the Ardennes in 1940 during the initial attack on France, and now, four years later, he would do so again. He planned to drive the enemy back and capture the Belgian city of Antwerp, the only open port in Allied hands. If it fell, the Allied supply lines to Britain would be cut, and they would be forced to retreat from France a second time. The High Command had scraped together 26 divisions for the attack, and on December 16, 1944, they hit a weak point in the Allied line at the hinge between the British and American army groups. The Nazi attack pushed a bulge into the Allied lines, giving the operation its popular name, the Battle of the Bulge. An American airborne division held the vital crossroads of Bastogne at the center of the bulge against repeated German attacks in the coldest winter Europe had seen in years. At the same time, General Patton's 3rd Army shifted its axis of advance northward to attack the bulge from the south, and these two forces met on the day after Christmas to drive the Germans back. The Storm Breaks, 1945 At its height in 1942, the Greater German Reich had stretched from the Pyrenees Mountains on the borders of Spain to the Volga River in Russia, and from the North Cape of Norway to the Sahara Desert. Now, three years later, Hitler ruled only his own nation of Germany, the western third of Poland, bits of Italy, and the Scandinavian lands of Denmark and Norway. His fall from power was as shocking as his rise, and it proved to be too much for him to bear. On July 20th, 1944, there had been an attempt on his life at his headquarters in East Prussia when a bomb was planted at a daily conference. The blast had shattered both his eardrums, which caused severe vertigo and headaches, and he may have been suffering from the early symptoms of Parkinson's disease as well. Hitler gradually withdrew from his inner circle and became increasingly unhinged in the last months of the war. The Anglo-American armies were now sweeping across the Rhine River after bridges were secured at Remagen, Koblenz, and Strasbourg, and the Soviets were moving into West Prussia. A decision by General Eisenhower had divided Nazi Germany in half, and Berlin lay in the Soviet zone. Hitler's beautiful home in Berchtesgaden had been blown up by the SS to prevent its fall to the Allies, and he was now confined to the bunker beneath the Reich Chancellery in Berlin, which was under repeated bombardment from American planes. Here he intended to die. The Fuhrer was awoken on his 56th birthday, on April 20, 1945, by the sounds of Soviet artillery landing in central Berlin. The Red Army had broken through the German defenses at Silo Heights, east of the capital, and were poised over the city. Now commanding paper armies which did not exist in reality, Hitler's rage grew each day as his soldiers failed to relieve Berlin and rescue their leader. Much of his time was spent with Nazi officials bidding him their farewells before flying out of the last operational airfield from Munich and then Berchtesgaden, where the SS was preparing a national redoubt for a final stand. When word reached him that two of his longtime collaborators, Hermann Goering and Heinrich Himmler, had betrayed him by opening talks with the Allies, Hitler ordered their deaths. Albert Speer, Hitler's personal architect and closest friend, confessed that he had tried to poison the Fuhrer, and that was the end. 
rather than flying into a rage, as had become so common for so many years when confronted with unpleasant news, Hitler simply bid him farewell and disappeared into the apartment he shared with his mistress of 15 years, Ava Brown. Only the ever-loyal Joseph Goebbels, who had brought his wife Magda and their six children with him into the bunker, remained true to Hitler to the end. On April 29th, as the Battle of Berlin raged above him, Hitler and Eva Braun were married in a macabre scene witnessed by Goebbels, a secretary, and a civil minister. Thousands of German boys and old men were being mowed down, and tens of thousands of German girls and women were being assaulted and murdered by the Red Army, but their Fuhrer showed no concern for their fate. Amidst the lies and vitriol spewed toward the Jews in his last will and testament, dictated to his secretary after the ceremony, Hitler said, quote, The German people have failed in this test of strength, and they deserve their fate, unquote. To the end, his nihilistic and Darwinist sentiments still intact, Hitler remained a fervent National Socialist. At 3 o'clock a.m. on April 30, 1945, Hitler bade his remaining staff farewell. He was never seen alive again. An hour later, a shot rang through the bunker, and Hitler's SS adjutant entered the apartment. Hitler and Eva had committed suicide, he by gunshot, she by cyanide capsule. Their bodies were cremated in the Reich Chancellery Garden as Berlin and the Third Reich burned around them. Berlin's defenders surrendered to the Red Army on May 1st, the same day on which Grand Admiral Karl Dönitz assumed the leadership of Germany after Joseph Goebbels and his wife shot themselves. They had first poisoned their children, ages 4 to 13. On May 7th, General Alfred Jodl arrived at Eisenhower's headquarters in Reims, France, to negotiate a general surrender. The terms were accepted, and the documents signed, and word was broadcast to the world that May 8th, 1945, would be Victory in Europe Day. Yesterday morning, at 2.41 a.m., at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command, and of Grand Admiral Dönitz, the designated head of the German state, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Forces and simultaneously to the Soviet High Command. Hostilities will end officially at one minute after midnight tonight, Tuesday the 8th of May. But in the interest of saving lives, the ceasefire began yesterday to be sounded along all the fronts. The German war is therefore at an end. Today is victory in Europe day. The celebrations which erupted across Europe and the world on VE Day will never be forgotten by those who witnessed them. In Paris, hundreds of thousands of people watched a victory parade down the Champs-Élysées as Allied aircraft zoomed overhead. The Mall, Whitehall, and Parliament Square in London were mobbed by over a million Britons dancing in the street, drinking beer, laughing and cheering as they saw Winston Churchill and the royal family on the balcony of Buckingham Palace. The future Queen Elizabeth II and her sister Princess Margaret later mingled with the crowd for the rest of the day. Even in Moscow, the long-suffering yet still oppressed Soviet people watched in awe as the mighty Red Army paraded through Red Square under the watchful eyes of Joseph Stalin and his NKVD guards. American spirits were tempered by the reality that Japan had not yet surrendered. 
But in the hour of victory, the people of Europe put aside their grief at the loss of friends and loved ones. The storm had passed. The war was over. Thank you for joining us on 15-Minute History. Please take a moment and leave us a review and tell your friends about this podcast. Tune in next week as we walk in history's footsteps 15 minutes at a time.